0: I'm always kind of thinking about the tiered system of accessibility for my art because I don't want my art to only be accessible to the person who can spend $3,000 on a painting. But I also can't survive on the person who wants to buy the $3 sticker.
1: Hello, print friends, and welcome. This is a bilingual podcast. So, if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to print, no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design, and you are ready to print. Pick up the speed screen kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials necessary to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company that represents the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Michael Izzell. We talk about the diversification of his printmaking practice, the inherent queerness in Greek and Roman art creative practice when you have a developed aesthetic, and astrological etchings. Hi, Michael. How's it going?
0: Hey, Miranda. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm so happy that we're getting to sit down. I have followed your work for a long time. I find myself really connected to the aesthetic, and I think you're brilliant, and I'm really excited to share your story and get to know you and the person behind the artwork a little bit more today.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm so happy to be here. I've been a huge fan of the podcast ever since the beginning. So it's like a dream to be on the on the podcast now.
1: Oh, it's a dream to have you. <laughs> so would you please let people know who you are, where you are, what you do?
0: I am Michael Azelle. I am currently living in Providence, Rhode Island. And I am I guess I'm painter, printmaker, screen printer by day, designer, a little bit of everything. I think
1: beautiful. And where did you grow up? And what role did art play in that part of your life?
0: So I am originally from Indiana. I grew up in like Elkhart, Indiana, which is right outside of South Bend, which a lot of people know as like Notre Dame and people to judge area um, art was a major part of my life growing up I was always drawing and doodling and just kind of very creative and dramatic and flamboyant and I think the way that my parents managed to deal with that was to like allow put me into like art camps so I did mm-hmm. a lot of art camps in elementary school. And, yeah, I spent a lot of time just, like, drawing and, and doodling and and all of that. I was yeah. really obsessed with cartoons, so I would, like, replicate cartoons. So I was drawing a lot of Pokemon. I was drawing a lot of SpongeBob. I would have, like, classmates in, like, fourth grade, like, having me draw them, like, a picture of SpongeBob and Patrick and, like, all of these cartoon characters.
1: Yeah, I feel like that is such a classic early artist experience is kind of getting to be the kid in the class who can draw the things and yeah. then having people go to them. We, we had one of those growing up, Devin Finley, <laughs> shout out to Devin, wherever you are. And like, now he does these beautiful murals on, in my hometown. But he was, he was like the kid where you would be like, Oh, I need a picture of a rabbit. Like go get Devin to draw a rabbit. Yeah. Right. Cause he had the skills. So. Yeah,
0: I would love to do a mural in my hometown. That would be so fun. Yeah, but yeah, I was, I was the kid that was always drawing things for people, and it was really fun. And I think that's probably where like my capitalist mindset sort of (laughs) like came in. I was like selling the drawings.
1: Were you really? Were you trading them for uh, for sticks of gum or that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I was definitely trading. Maybe not actually getting cash for it, but there was definitely a barter system happening at one point.
1: I yeah. love it. <laughs> and so, was it just kind of always known in your family? Oh, Michael, he's going to be art school. He's going to go be an artist, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I think my parents are very like practic- practical people. So, they see me being very artistic, and they, I think, don't really know much about the art world and like what I could do with my art. So, I think they're, they're, idea of like what i could do is like graphic design or advertising Mm -hmm. so my mom was like if you want to go to art school then you need to get really good grades and get scholarships to go to art school because and you're going to do something that's going to make you money i was like okay fine i was like i'm going to go for illustration and she's like what's that and i was like it's basically graphic design and advertising in one lo and behold it's neither and it's not (laughs) going to make money at all So I, like in high school, I enrolled in like a summer program at SCAD, Mm -hmm. Savannah College of Art and Design, and went there like between my sophomore and junior year for two weeks and I like fell in love with it. So then when it came time to choosing colleges, that was the only place that I applied. I wanted to go to art school, but I also wanted to get out of Indiana. So it was like I I had a couple motives for wanting to go to SCAD and I was like one of I think three people in my graduating class that left Indiana to go to oh, wow. out of state. and I've never been back since. So it was, I, I loved, I spent six years in Savannah, Georgia, and then moved to Providence after that. But it was one of the best experiences of my life.
1: Yeah. Like that's going wonderful. to
0: the South for one and then going to an arts college after growing up in like the mundane Midwest was like, it was like I was seeing in full color. It was amazing.
1: That's interesting because I, I definitely, and maybe this is just because, in my childhood, the book and the movie "Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil" was very, very big. I yeah. really associate Savannah as an artistic, flamboyant place. Was that how you experienced it as a young person?
0: Yeah, and in, I, I loved that movie. I never actually read the book, but I loved the movie and the it's more than that it's mm. like much more flamboyant much more colorful just because the the college itself you're just surrounded by kids your age who were sort of similar in their schools where they're like kind of the one or two artists who wanted to go to art school and we're all just like put together and it's just like we're all weird and awkward and like trying things out and experimenting and expressing mm. ourselves and i think it was a really great mix of all of those types of people together in this city that has like such a rich history and like beautiful decadence to it, naturally and like architecturally. And it's like you're like in a wonderland down
1: there. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I bet the winters are a bit nicer too.
0: (laughs) They were nicer. They were wet though, wet and cold.
1: Oh really? Okay. Humidity,
0: Humidity doesn't go away in the winter. So it's like 50 degrees and like you're riding your bike and like sweating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It was, it
0: was, <laughs> they were nice, but it wasn't, it wasn't much better.
1: Gotcha. I it just, love it's, a
0: snowy winter too. I like, I love a a Christmas in the Midwest.
1: Oh, okay. So the winters weren't something that, yeah. Midwestern winters were not something you suffered through. I get it. I love, yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And so, then what was the the move from Savannah to Providence? Then what took you there?
0: That was sort of like a need to leave the town I went to college in. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I went so I went to school, graduated, and then before graduating, I started working for the school at their art gallery shop called Shopscad mm-hmm. um, with student and alumni artwork and for a couple years after that, I was working there as an assistant manager, which opened up so many like doors and gave me so many opportunities that have really like helped me get into where I am today. But I was still living and being surrounded by like students and it's one of those things where like everyone that I graduated with left and I was still there and I, I felt that weird like I don't think I should be here anymore. Mm. If I don't leave I might stay here forever. So my partner and I at the time were like let's go somewhere we've never been before and we just picked Providence on a map really. Really? Yeah, I had a couple friends here, and a friend who is from here, who Elizabeth Jean Yance, who was on this podcast before.
1: Oh, she was treasure, living from, treasure!
0: Yeah, she is from here, so she gave me a lot of like tips and like insight on moving up here. But I've been here for seven years now, and I, I love it here.
1: That's wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing. And so. What was your making like in the years after graduation before moving to Providence? Because I feel like that can be a really tricky time in an artist's life when all of a sudden it's not your full-time job to make art and you're not surrounded by people who are making art and you're not swimming in that water. You have to go and you have to build a life that has managing a, a gallery shop and that kind of thing in it.
0: I think those were probably the most formative years for me in my professional practice because I was working for the school. So, and I had a really good relationship with the print department. So they, as a staff member, I I did have access to the buildings. And because I was good friends with all of the people who worked in the print department, I was able to use the facilities, mm. which is great. I still had access to the print shop. And I was also working at a gallery that encouraged me to sell my work and that's sort of the first time where it like clicked in my head where I'm like I have an illustration degree I don't want to be an editorial illustrator I don't want to be a children's book illustrator I don't want to do advertising what can I do with my visual art that could make me happy and I was like oh I can just make work and sell it and now right now I'm like why didn't I think of that before but (laughs) at the time I was like the idea of selling my work in a gallery setting didn't occur to me or like Mm. making products that I could sell. So I started painting and I started doing these like book page illustrations and was selling those in batches at the shop and they were pretty popular. And then I kept making more and was getting commissioned to do stuff. So kind of like it grew on itself to a point where like people we're starting to recognize my work and I had a couple other shows around town and I started to see a life for myself where I'm like, Oh, I can be an artist
1: <laughs> for yeah. a living.
0: who knew. Yeah. Um,
1: well, and we were talking a little bit before we jumped into the interview about this space of like what, who and what is an artist if they're not having one exhibition every two years in a white wall gallery in Chelsea yeah. and they're not, being a professor and I feel like that's kind of what you're answering in that is that you you can just sell your artwork
0: yeah and it's it's weird because and I think that time was a beautiful time because Instagram was just blossoming so like I look at some of my first Instagram posts of like my sketchbook pages and stuff like that, throwing on those like really intense heavy filters that they used to have. (laughs) And I'm like, what was I thinking? And now I use it as a marketing tool to like, it is my, my basically like my website light version. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but with that also, I see hundreds of thousands of other artists who are also doing it and it puts so much pressure like pressure on yourself seeing success elsewhere and when you want that same success it's like oh I see all of these artists who are doing really big galleries I'm like how are you getting shows how are you getting shows and I'm like how do I do this like like and then you like start loading on the weight on yourself and it just mm. becomes sort of existential crisis of Am I an artist? Should I, should I go back to school? Do I need to have a master's degree to tell to convey that I'm an artist? Will I get more shows if I go get a degree in painting or a degree in printmaking? And these are all questions I ask myself every day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's solve them right yeah. now, you and me. Yeah. Because I I it is they're really, really good questions. And I think what's interesting about the MFA route. And this is from having spoken with over 200 artists being married to someone with an MFA, having gone through an MFA as a partner of someone who is getting it and watching the blood, sweat and tears in real time. And I think that for some people, it is just what they need. But for a lot of people, it's kind of just, A miserable three years that they end up slightly traumatized on the other side of. Yeah. Yeah. And pain. Yeah. Or even, I can't remember who I was talking with someone the other day, and they were saying that it's almost like there's just a culture of abuse in it of, well, this is just what happens when you get an MFA. Yeah. So I, I, they were mean to me when I got my MFA. So I have to be really hard on you when you get your MFA. Yeah, and
0: you're right about some people.
1: Path. Yeah, exactly. Like like like, an, are hazing until you you get to the, to the other side. And and like I said, some people it's it's great. It's formative. They find their voice. They make connections. They meet their gallerists. That changes their life. And other people they end up almost needing to take a few years off from making because it's just so disruptive to their creative process and there doesn't seem to be any kind of standardization that's what's so strange about it That it's not like this is we've decided this is what an mfa is and an mfa means it's not like that it's like each individual advisor and department you're going to get something totally different so it seems like such a wild card
0: yeah and it's and it's It's interesting to think about sort of where I've come from six years ago to where I'm at now. I'm like, I have taken a very like unconventional, I think, approach to how I've gotten to where I am. And a lot of these things have like come to me and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll try that. Like, do you want to paint this mural? Like, sure, I'll try that. And then it's like do you want to paint this mural? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, am I a mural artist now? But I'm not advertising that I'm a mural artist. I also had like a brand where I was like selling like accessories and like pins, patches and printed goods. And there was that whole maker movement where I'm like, am I a maker? I'm doing markets. Am I selling my art and selling this type of art and selling this type of art? And then getting to that point where I have to ask myself, like, is it, watering down my fine art brand to kind of include all of this merch that I'm trying to push and like become a business owner that sells pins and patches and like designs. And I'm like, am I going to spend my time more time being a designer or am I, should I be spending more time being a fine artist and like honing in on my craft? And I am one of those people that sees like, five different paths I could take and I want to take all of them at once but like trying to prioritize like which ones right now are the best fit for me is sort of where I get like paralyzed and then I don't do anything because I'm thinking about all of the things that I should be doing or could be yeah. doing or want to be doing
1: Yeah and trying to balance I think expectations that you put on yourself versus actually do really exist in the fine art market versus identity and how you want to be seen. It's mm-hmm. all really tricky stuff because I've I've known several artists who've been in the place that you're in of, of of saying like, well, there's a market for what I make outside of this really da- narrow definition of fine art or fine art print where it's done in this way and there's Twenty in this edition, and they all look the same. And I've signed it. I've numbered them, and they're worth this much money. But what about the person who does just want a sticker? You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and
0: I'm always yeah. thinking about the. I think, and especially ever since I was working at that gallery in Sven I was like, I'm always kind of thinking about the tiered system of accessibility for my art, because I don't want my art to only be accessible to the person who can spend $3,000 on a painting. Mm-hmm. But I also can't survive on the person who wants to buy the $3 sticker. Yeah. So like, and like, I'm trying to fill in, fill in the gaps all in between and like create sort of an equitable system of accessibility for everyone. But then also like I'm making sacrifices in sort, certain visibility. Are gallerists going to go to my website and see my $20 digital prints and think like, Oh, I don't think that person takes their art seriously enough to be featured mm. in this. Like, okay. Well, do I need to get rid of all of that to be more serious as a like a painter or a printmaker? And I don't think there's any one right answer. I think I go back and forth between needing to do something and then also saying like, fuck this. I'm just going to do whatever I want because the world's going to end soon. And I'm like, if yes. I don't do everything that I want to do right now, like why not?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you <laughs> with the, the, the nihilism too of just yeah. why not? Is there anything going to be standing in 20 years? <laughs>
0: yeah, know? I lately have been just kind of telling myself like, why not? Like if you want to do it, do it. I what's to stop you and I constantly need to be like reminding myself that where I'm at now I'm I'm lucky to be where I'm at now and I I have done really cool stuff and I just need to like accept that I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is such a really interesting transition I think in an artist's sort of trajectory which is from that place of a huge sense of maybe lack or needing to prove yourself or scarcity and just, just staying hungry and just clawing, clawing, clawing and, and doing all these things. And then there's a moment where you can say, oh, have I actually proven something? Am I, am I, okay? am I safe? Am I, you
0: know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm not to like sort of like a go into the cliche of like age, but like, I weirdly am feeling like I'm at a point now where I'm like turning 32 this year. I'm like, I feel like I am like getting older Mm -hmm. and I don't need to prove myself as much Mm -hmm. anymore. I feel, and I also like don't have the drive that I had seven years ago where I could (laughs) literally do it all. Like now I'm, I'm still like up until this point, I've been trying to keep that momentum going like my back hurts, yeah. <laughs> my knees hurt, my feet hurt. <laughs> like yeah. I'm tired a lot more and I am trying to be like easier on myself and allowing myself to rest more. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop my mind from like racing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so important I think to have that, grace for oneself and so difficult in this really intense capitalist system where it somehow, and in, 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 I can speak from the, speaking from the eye, <laughs> I <laughs> feel like if I stop for one second, if I give myself one break, if I miss one episode I'm just going to get bulldozed over because there's a thousand people younger and hungrier who are who want that attention, right? Who yeah. want to take that place. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that's true because I think we are all offering something unique. That's the only thing that we can put into the world. And there are other people, yeah, but they're not doing what you do. And so you just need to trust that you're going to find your people and the people who are going to support you no matter what crazy rate that we're going at. I, I heard an interview with, with Martha Beck the other day who described it as an assembly line society. And, and so we're just expected to just be putting like the cap on the toothpaste, right? Like so the next person can can put it in the box or something like that, and and I really feel that, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And it's when I stopped doing like my like goods, my accessory, my my merch lines, sort of as like a mark, like i doing markets and like vending and like actually making like a brand of itself. I would go to markets and I'd feel like FOMO. It's like when you stop doing something that everyone else is doing, you feel that like mm. like. I feel like if I don't do this, I'll become irrelevant. Yeah. But I agree with you where it's, I think that's a self in like a self projected falsity mm-hmm. where I, and I remember like, Oh, like I know that there are people who care what I'm doing. And I do have like a good strong base of friends, family, and people who are genuinely interested in what I'm doing that I don't think I will become irrelevant. So it's like needing to remind yourself to, it's okay to stop and pick something up at a later date if you feel it. Yeah. But yeah, this society we live in is like, it's everything is split second. It's like Mm -hmm. the attention span, like trying to constantly grab someone's attention is exhausting. Yeah, And it becomes a point where it is assembly line where I'm, I'm now just generating stuff for attention and I'm not necessarily making this for myself or using this as an outlet for myself anymore. It's becoming a, a marketable thing.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I think about too is when I'm doing that, when I'm creating this content, who am I making rich, Right. I'm yeah. not making myself rich. I'm making Instagram executives rich. I'm making yeah. Spotify executives rich. Like I am feeding these shells that they created. Yeah. And making them billions and
0: like feed the beast. Just,
1: yeah, feeding <laughs> the beast. <laughs> I I love to talk about the developing of your really distinctive aesthetic because it's because yeah. I think it all fits into this conversation about marketing and capitalism and the industrial age, yeah. because part of 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 what your practice is is, is it's really like you. What's your work when you see it, right? Because you have this really strong voice, and I think a lot of times artists with a illustrative background they're really good at that. They're really good at creating a voice that's unique and their own, and is just really really appealing. and And so, when did that style? start to find its way into what you were doing was this something that kind of intentionally created did you always have this sort of roman greco voice in what you did uh,
0: like the the greco roman like layer of my work sort of began like in elementary school i remember the really? first time the first time i developed a fascination with it was specifically fourth grade with Mrs. Gaipa (laughs) and one of our like English projects was like Greek myths and I don't know why but I was just so fixated on it and I remember going to like the public library checking out all of the books that I could especially books with imagery in them because Mm -hmm. as a visual person and as an illustrator I want to see and with stories like this reading it's is great but seeing like depict depictions of it was like so like it was addictive almost for me like so i would get on like get on my dial-up internet at home and like google search like different stories and like find deviant art pages with like mm. art of like different things and like i loved seeing like manga that was an an iteration of certain things and it was really cool to see this, these like thousands of year old stories, like still relevant to people and like still kind of like landing for people. And it was an interesting, it was just very fascinating to me. And then I think going through college and doing these illustration courses where I didn't really feel were what I wanted to be doing. I was kind of like phoning in a lot of my projects in Mm. illustration and I was like this I'm just kind of like giving you what I think you want and it wasn't until like my first printmaking class which was an intro to printmaking class that I was told to just draw something Hmm. like do what you want it can be whatever you want do it in relief do it in intaglio do it in litho and I did that and I think that was like when it immediately hit me like oh i I can draw on tap into this resource of like imagery and storytelling that I'm so obsessed with, but haven't really been able to fit into the project specs for my illustration classes. And I can just do them here and that picked up. And then I took my, after my intro to printmaking class with Deb and I took my intro to etching class and then I took another etching class. And then at some point I realized, well, I can't, minor in printmaking because I'm too far along in my studies where I'm just going to replace all of my illustration electives with printmaking
1: uh-huh. um,
0: classes. And it was just a release for me. I was like, why haven't I been doing this all my life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I make multiples and give them to my friends and sell them. And I think my final like por- illustration portfolio class senior year <laughs> was – funny because we had to print out all of our print out all of our like pieces and like curate a portfolio as though we're taking it to somebody who would hire us to Uh print. So we presented it to like our professor in our class and my entire portfolio was just etchings that I did. And she was like, this is really nice, but I don't think you're like, I don't think like illustration is what you want to be doing.
1: Oh, like you're right.
0: I, I think I want to be like a printmaker and I think I want to be doing stuff for myself because I don't want to be working for other people. Yeah. I don't want people to tell me what to tell me what to draw and then I can just draw it in my style. I want the freedom to do what I want. And I think that discovering that freedom is where sort of my style began. And then it like evolved and progressed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now
0: I look at stuff That I made in college and I'm like, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> <severe>.
1: <laughs> but I feel like that's, that's very, it's, that's natural. That's like, yeah, I yeah, look yeah, back yeah. at yeah. student work and be like, oof. <laughs> wow. Okay. No, that's, that's really interesting. Do you have any sense of what it was about Greco-Roman aesthetic that just you found kind of irresistible and that, and that has, been such a through line. That's what I think is so interesting is that even sort of in childhood, it's, it never has gotten, it sounds like it's never, it's never gotten played out for you. It's continued to inspire and really be a, a driving force for you.
0: Yeah. The like statues and like this sort of like stoic imagery that imagery and like architectural details and like I think of when I think of like a Roman temple or a Greek mm-hmm. temple, I think that is like the epitome of like beauty.
1: Mm.
0: Me, that beauty is something that I think I seek to replicate in my work through the tools that I can that I can use in my own way. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's also this this desire for perfection. Oh, Yeah which has become more relevant, prevalent in in my work in the last couple of years with what I've been making. Like I've been able to reflect on that, this idea of wanting to seek this divine perfection or this perfection in myself or in my work or in nature, Mm. whether it be to create an escape from reality a lot of my work lately has been about presenting a level of perfection and put togetherness where and showing the complete opposite within myself. It's kind of like a mindstorm within, but I'm going to try and give you like a hard face and mm. be strong, and be like perfect. but then like the cracks that are coming in and things kind of unraveling finding the beauty in the cracks mm-hmm. is a lot more interesting to me now. And like breaking away from that and distorting that and abstracting that. And I don't yeah. know if that's your question or not.
1: No, it it, <laughs> it does. And I it, it just, it's bringing a whole bunch of different things to mind. And a lot of them are, I don't know if i just, I want to say spiritual in nature, you know, that idea of the cracks are where the light gets in. It's a very famous Rumi saying. And and that idea of that the only thing that can truly be perfect is the divine. This is something that you see in a lot of traditions of making and in indigenous traditions of making throughout the world of, of creating a flaw intentionally in what you make, because it's a way of showing reverence to what, whatever and whoever you define as divine is this idea of like, well, I can't ever be perfect because I'm not, I'm not a God. I'm not a creator. I'm not the divine. Right. And so, I think that's really found in many different spiritual traditions and I think a really interesting aspect of making and related to I think really traditional and sometimes ancient ideas of making is that idea of 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 we are special we are divine beings because we make. Right. And other creatures don't. And then you know, in recent years we're like, oh Well, crows use tools, but like, but the Romans didn't know that. So like, that was like, that was like, if you read like ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, a lot of how they define humans and why they think humans are divine is because gods create and humans create, we create statues, we create temples, we create paintings. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think like piggybacking on that, the, the idea that humans create gods
1: Mm, in a way, mm -hmm. Oh yeah,
0: wouldn't exist without humans in a way. So I find that that idea of we are actually the creators and we have the ability to create full universes in our minds Mm. is really interesting to me. And in Greek mythology, like it's one of the few myths, one of the few mythologies that personify was one of the I think first, first or few that like personify the gods as themselves. Uh-huh. They're f- human. They're not really animals. They're not really like these strange combinations of different things. They are reflections of themselves and flawed and everything that goes with it. They just have like a hierarchy over humans, which I always found interesting too.
1: Yeah. Like and, yeah. And they're so, particularly in Greek and Roman mythology, like they're so human. Like they have jealousies, they have rivalries, they have lust, they have all of these elements of humanity that in other religious traditions has kind of been like wiped clean from this idea, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. They're like, not, they, yeah. It's like they're. Yeah, they they get their hands dirty a little bit, whereas I feel yeah. like in our apologies, they're held a little bit higher and more stoically.
1: Hmm. Yeah. 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 Like in Christian traditions, God got to become a human, but God was a perfect human, yeah. right? Like a human yeah. with without flaws. So it's yeah, it's right. I I yeah I I I think that. I, I got a, a minor in classical studies and so I really love a lot of the traditions and the stories and and I do understand that it is, there's a lot that is plenty, plenty, like extremely problematic through a modern lens about Greek and Roman society, right? right. But the stories that come out of it still feel so relevant and, and so... A lot of them feel kind of like perfect encapsulations of human experiences that are just, just these these nuggets of hey, how do you describe what this is like? And it's like yeah. oh, like Cassandra, you know. Yeah,
0: there are these archetypes that are that are classical. It's like we can look back to these almost moralistically or as some like foretelling of something to come where it's like, yeah, this has happened and will continue to happen. And Mm. we enjoy seeing it reiterated over and over again with different lenses laid over it.
1: Yeah. To that end, I'm curious about the process of, how you make the Greco-Roman aesthetic so much your own because you're not replicating it at all. You know, it's not a, a, a one-to-one copy. You were taking it and you were making it Michael's.
0: But am like, expanding yeah. it a little bit, I feel. Yeah,
1: yeah. Anyway,
0: I think there was, like, a project that I did at a residency a couple of years ago where I invented, like, three more goddesses and stories. Uh-huh them and created like these vessels that were like shrines to them almost. So Mm. I, I really like to reference mythology, but I don't necessarily ever want it to be like a direct depiction per Mm -hmm. se, because I feel like I got a lot of that out as a kid. And I yeah. also, have, I saw a lot of that in my like childhood research and like fan, my fan research for it all. So I'm like, uh-huh. I can Google search like Zeus and see a sea of images of Zeus. Like, yeah. I, I think that's been done. I think what's interesting to me is like how we can use this sort of whimsical, magical world to show other things and and create new lenses.
1: And in some of your pieces, you'll directly reference Greco-Roman stories like Actaeon. And, but it looks so incredibly contemporary in what you do while still having that thread on it. So it's just, it's a really interesting, it seems like at least in my mind as someone who's followed your work almost like an aesthetic t- tightrope because you go too much one direction you're going to lose that that subtle influence you go too much the other direction it's going to look like you're just trying to imitate something that's historical
0: right well and I, and I love when I love it almost being like a nod to something where if you know the story it's it's interesting to you mm. Like, oh, I recognize that. But if you don't recognize it, then it's also a great opportunity to like talk about it and tell the story. Right. So it, becomes, it becomes a a conversation starter in a way, where I like to kind of elaborate on the prints themselves. Like I did a series of the zodiac a couple of years ago, and that was really fun for me because I a lot I thought that I knew. The stories about all of the zodiac signs, but I actually was surprised to find some of the stories I didn't know, which mm. was really cool. So I, I did a lot of like mythological research, but then I was also researching about sort of the more modern, the modern like Jung, Jungian associations with each of the signs as well. So like learning about the astrological signs as as traits, mm. which was really cool. Sort of how they could and, like, didn't really associate with, like, the myth that they were sort of supposed to be portraying. Um, yeah. So, it's just, I, like, I will go down wormholes and just, like, look at, I love, a, like, a Wikipedia click-through. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll, like, read a story. I'll, like, read a Wikipedia page and then just, like, click through the links. And then just, like, find these, like, really random, like, there's no information about this, like, mythological figure. But. It existed in a story at one time, so like, yeah. and almost illuminating those stories in a way where I'm like, nobody can fact check me because there is no information about this. Person. <laughs> we can create a whole new story about this person, which I yeah. find really. Cool. There are gods and goddesses that we don't have any information about, or like barely any information about. Like the Etruscan mythology is so cool to me because it like predates a lot of Roman mythology, but Romans kind of. Just like tamped it down and put their own stamp on it, but it seems like a lot wilder and a lot more rural, which Mm -hmm. I find really cool. It's it's very, it's all just very fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, that was something that I always loved about learning about Roman spirituality is that idea of they could just show up somewhere and and be like, all right, what what gods do you have here? You know. for us. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like we're like no, we already have a god of locks. What else do you have? You know, yeah. <laughs> like Yeah. And and in a way I've almost seen that like reflected in my own way of understanding what spirituality and the divine is is just kind of being open to the way different people do things and if something seems to fit a missing part of what I have, you can just sort of be like, Oh yeah, that makes you sense. Know. You know, I'll just, I'll, I can, I can that, can, that can, that can fold into all of this, you know? Right.
0: Or I'm going to make up something entirely new and, and work around that. And yeah, it's like, it's at the end of the day, we are creating all of this. Like
1: mm-hmm.
0: it doesn't have to end there. It can keep going.
1: Yeah, and
0: I mm-hmm. also love Capricorn, but like, Sagittarius was really cool because that was the last one that I did. So I started Capricorn because I'm a Capricorn, and then ended okay. Sagittarius. Yeah. So also even seeing because I did each one within the month that that sign was. So it was oh, a fun. really cool year-long exploration in that series to then see compare Sagittarius to like Capricorn, mm-hmm. and then like Capricorn season came, and I was like, do I redo it? Like, do I like start over again?
1: Yeah. So I'm like
0: I would do it differently, which was really funny. I'm like, I'm not gonna do a second series, but that would have been really cool.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. Do you think that that there's any kind of like inherent queerness to Greco-Roman aesthetic? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was hoping I you'd wish, say yes.
0: <laughs> I honestly wish like the 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 homoeroticness of Greco-Roman mythology would be exploited more. Mm, mm-hmm. exploited, or not maybe exploited, but like expanded on more in contemporary mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it was so gay. Yes. <laughs> it was so gay. And like, why aren't we talking about that more?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I... I think about that when I think of like all the kind of like toxic bros who are like, yeah, fucking Sparta, bro. You know,
0: (laughs) do you realize like you are living, like you are living a joke right now. Like you're not in on the joke, but like (laughs) you could be, (laughs) you
1: you know what I I think about a lot is the, I believe it was. And this is, yeah, I'm like, This is me being like a 20-year-old now, classics minor, so I can't remember if it was the Greeks or the Romans, but maybe it was both, that had this idea that when you were on the battlefield, you should be on the battlefield with your lover because you wouldn't want to be embarrassed in front of your lover fighting. Like it would be the person that you would want to look the best in front of. You know, mm-hmm. would would be your lover, and of course, in in the stories that we have, there's a, a lot of romance between the the male lead characters that also kind of got like translated out in some circumstances yeah. because like watered
0: down a little bit, watered down. Yeah,
1: it's just Achilles' best friend, that kind of thing. And and I think about that sometimes, at least in my own experience. If this is far from a Roman battlefield, but if I'm like giving an artist talk and my husband is in the audience, I'm like, okay, I got to kill this. I got to like really bring it. Cause I think it, I think it works. And I, it's, I think about that in my own life and not wanting to be embarrassed in front of your lover. That's a thing.
0: (laughs) Really? And that's the person that like you respect the most. So you want to like show up for them the most that you can. Yeah. Yeah. The like song of Achilles is a book that I read a couple years ago, the same summer that Call Me By Your Name, the movie came out. Oh, yeah. And it, like, wrecked me. Both, like, it was, like, a double a double hit where I was just, like, ah, oh, this is just beautiful. Like mm-hmm. Like, make a movie of this. Like, we need more, like, gay warrior love stories.
1: Yes. Because I feel like that's such a beautiful story in the sense that the, the drama is so ingrained in it. Like why can't Hollywood yeah. cash in on that? You know, like speaking of like through a capitalist lens, like, like it's, it's, it's there already. It writes itself.
0: And you can make it like, like you can like add the turmoil of like struggling with homosexuality, but like it was very common in that time. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. really, like, there wasn't really a second thought about it. So, I mean, maybe it would be too boring to normalize (laughs) ancient Greek homosexuality.
1: Well, in a way, it seems like it could be kind of a solution to this issue that Hollywood has of, of how every story about queerness or gayness homosexuality it has this element of it of and it will be tragic for you because you are gay yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> but okay. if it's if it's the song of Achilles that the, the it's just a story of gay people
0: yeah and you know how it's gonna end everyone dies in the end yes. So like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of less it's less like I'm gonna go into this movie and I expect that it will have a sad. Ending. Whereas, like a lot of like queer and gay films now are like, I actually won't watch that because I know that I probably will cry. Yeah. Because I want it to have a happy ending, but like it could have a sad ending. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so many like sad ending gay movies ha- happening right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and like kind of forever. I saw Brokeback Mountain when it came into theaters, but I'm like, i never going to watch it again. No. It's too fucking sad.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like these, like, yeah, it's, like, give me some more, like, Fire Island movies. Yes. <laughs> like, I want to laugh and see, like, I want to see, like, the queer community, like, having a fun, raucous time.
1: hmm Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we're, we're getting there. And I think what's nice about the internet age is that gay people can make media that is the media they want to see mm-hmm. and put it out there. And so you you and of course there's nothing's gonna have the the cash power of something like a Hollywood film, right? But but you can create you can create TikTok channels that's creating that and yeah. and be what you put what, what you want to see in the world and it can be consumed. But yeah, it's it's not the same and it does seem like there's just like a, a market for it. But you know, the yeah the arc of mass media is long but it yeah. bends towards consumerism yeah <laughs> yeah
0: always always and i will be waiting on bated breath for my achilles patrickless movie
1: i think do you do you want to cast it like who
0: <laughs> i don't know if i've even thought about it i think when i read the book i was reading it with the characters from Call Me by Your Name, mm-hmm. just because I had that in my head. Yeah, and that like, makes sense. Of course, Timothy Chalamet should play a gay man, but
1: I yeah. also
0: don't want him to play a gay man.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think if particularly, it's hard to do it if these are archetypes that have been a part of your life for a long time, right? Because that's a very at that point, it's a very personal question, right? Yeah, who would you trust? These people who have been important you important right. to you with, right? Yeah. Do you ever feel boxed in at all by having such a distinctive aesthetic, or is it is it still feel really rewarding and rich every time you return to it, or do you do you just not even think about it as parameters in your creative practice?
0: I am I compartmentalize. My creative practice, I think, mm-hmm. in a way that feels like I can dip out, dip in to different pools of inspiration. Yeah, I so like my day job. I work as a like a like a designer, illustrator, and screen printer at a local shop here called Frog and Toad. Mm-hmm. So there, like a couple years ago, I just started like having like these ideas and like creating these designs that we would start to print on t-shirts and totes. So my like outlet for sort of things not within like my realm of like f- fine art practice are coming out as cartoon characters that are really sassy and snarky mm-hmm. or like really funny, like self-deprecating like Rhode Island souvenir designs so I feel like I get a lot of my I like can shake off a lot of like overwhelming creative energy in my day job where I'm sort of creating much more lighthearted much more Mm. quick things that end up on apparel that like make people laugh and make people think of Rhode Island (laughs) I do a lot of Rhode Island designs and I love Rhode Island I'm like such a roadie in my seven years living here so I love like like learning the history of Rhode Island and like making fun of it
1: yep so I've
0: I've I do a lot of that at work
1: I think that's the, the way to do it. And speaking of of our, our mutual lovely friend, Elizabeth Jean Yance, she has her mustard beetle, right? And then she's got like the fine art. And I think someone who is so much a maker, and it sounds like for you, you grew up a maker, as we talked about, like you were that kid who people were like, draw this thing for me, draw SpongeBob for me, right? That it's just going to always come out in different ways you're always going to be making and we live in kind of a interesting time when it comes to I guess like needing to brand and compartmentalize and define what we do but there's ways around it and it sounds like yeah you've got a a method for it
0: yeah I think define define what we do is i think a really key way of putting a lot of what my art career has been mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. trying to define who i am like when people ask me what do you do i'm like i like take a deep sigh and like okay like how do i want to answer this like do i mm-hmm. tell them like I'm a screen printer painter by day or screen printer designer by day, like printmaker painter by night. Like what am I to people? And it's like trying to shut that voice down and just kind of go with the flow that I've been going with for the past five, I don't know six or seven years it's like I think it's it's all gonna work out in the end and Mm. having friends like Elizabeth who does what she does so well and I'm like you are incredible I don't know how you do this it's (laughs) unreal to trying to decide like what what I want to be today is it's 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 crazy yeah
1: yeah yeah but I I think as you said like with Age, one of like the huge gifts is learning that you don't need the answers. Yeah. And you're probably never going to get them. So you kind of got to get used to not having the answers.
0: (laughs) Relax. And I will say like I recently started going to therapy and it it has helped really to talk to someone about it. Like I have people that I talk to about it, but like talking to someone who doesn't know me and has no – opinion about anything about it is it has been really nice to have a space for that. And I, up, up until the point of like going to therapy, I was like, I don't need therapy. <laughs> I know exactly what the therapist will say because I say it to myself every day, but yeah. it actually is very helpful.
1: It It is. And, and I think that there's a new, I don't know what to say trend, but there's like, I I think that contemporary therapy is so much now about where you are right now. Yeah. And not necessarily how did you get there? And I think that's something that people get wrong about it is that they think, oh, I'm just going to be lying on a sofa and I'm talking about my childhood. And it's, that's a very antiquated idea of what it is. It's, I've, I heard a therapist describe it as if you come to me with an arrow sticking out of your chest, I'm not going to be like, okay, but actually like when they shot you, how were they holding the bow and arrow? Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> well, uh, yeah. And it's like, I, and I think another part of that was like going into, I was like, I don't have childhood trauma. I had a really good relationship, still have a really good relationship with my parents. I'm like, I don't have, any pre-existing conditions that would make me need therapy so i just need to suck it up
1: yeah
0: and i think mm-hmm. a l- probably a lot of people feel like there are a lot worse there are a lot of people who have it worse that deserve it but i think it's definitely something everybody could benefit from so
1: yeah yeah that's that's a huge one one of the things that my therapist has said to me that I think about a lot when I'll talk about like, oh, like I feel like if I was such and such kind of person, I wouldn't be reacting this way. And he'll be like, but you are like, <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, like, it's not about what you think you kind of deserve to be upset over or traumatized by. Yeah. It's you have to deal with how you actually did respond to this. Like for some reason, like I have this archetype in my head of this like really hot, chill French woman. And I'm always like, I'm always like, yeah, like she wouldn't have cared if like someone said that to her.
0: (laughs) her, She would have been cool as a cucumber.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And my therapist will be like, yes, but you didn't. So let's,
0: (laughs) you never know. Maybe she wouldn't have been.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I should name her. I should should be like Jacqueline. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So anyway, it's, yeah. I feel like we're already have been chatting for an hour and I feel like this has just been such a beautiful conversation and I, I love the places it went. And I just want to thank you again for, for making time in a very busy time of year to sit down with me and, and have these conversations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is like the highlight of my year.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. Slipping it under the wire. Really. December.
0: <laughs> we did.
1: Would, would you let people know where they can find you and follow you? Yeah,
0: I'm most active on my Instagram, which is E-E-Z-Z-L-L. It's just my last name organized. And my website is mezel.com, dot M-E-Z-Z-E-L-L
1: beautiful well thank you again Michael I will put links to that in the show notes and this has been yeah a real a real treat thank you
0: yeah thank you so much
1: if you like today's episode we have a Patreon where you can help support our podcast and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts with past guests but the very best thing you can do to support this podcast is listen rate follow and share with your fellow print friends around the world and that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Courtney Trelia. We talk about her experience working at the Print Studio at the Columbia Teachers College in New York City throughout the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Trauma, grief, and how print and poetry can guide us through these. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.